Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hey everyone, welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm being joined this morning with um, a woman who is very familiar with Philadelphia, and for those of you that are in the Philadelphia area, I'm sure you have heard of her. Um, She's calling in from D.C., and her name is Anne Malum, and Anne is the founder of Back on My Feet. Welcome to Women to Watch, Anne. Thank you, Susan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so happy to have you with us this morning, and and we have lots to talk about. So let's get right to it. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your growing up years in North Dakota. Yeah, North Dakota was, uh, you know, when you look back at it, it was a really great place to grow up. There wasn't a lot to be concerned about there. It's really, really safe. There's lots of kids everywhere. You know, I can remember not locking our doors at night. You know, you could leave your keys in your car. Um, it was just, it was just really easy. And I, I remember thinking, you know, even when you watch TV and you see things, that that wasn't real. I thought every kid grew up the same way that I did, which was with this, you know, big yard, um, a bike, and this, you know, this great family. So, I, uh, I loved growing up there, but. When I was 16 years old, uh, I really got a difficult dose of reality when learning that my dad had a pretty active gambling addiction that uh, me or the rest of my family, including my mom, weren't aware of. And when you think your life is pretty great and that you have things figured out and you base your ideals off of, you know, your family life and what you see and you realize those things weren't really truthful, um, especially when you're 16 and you're just dealing with all these different emotions and, and hormones and growing up. Um, it was really difficult for me to process all that information. Right. You know, um, one of the things that I um, noticed when I was looking at your profile and listening to some of the talks that you've given, um, you talked a lot about um, those years prior to finding out about your dad, and and the two of you had a really wonderful relationship. Um, I, I think it's interesting that when you found out you talked about the fact that you were you actually were mad at your mom, more mad at your mom than your dad. And I think that's important in um, the, the work that you eventually did. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I blamed, uh, I blamed my mom for a lot of stuff. My mom is a very independent woman. She's extremely um, responsible, and she kind of, you know, took care of everything with the family. She not only worked, but she cooked and she cleaned, and she was the one that was responsible for, you know, getting us places and signing us up for activities. And, um, you know, I always felt like my mom was so strong. And so for my dad, you know, my dad was never really dealt a great a great hand of cards. His, his Both of his parents were alcoholics and his dad um, committed suicide when my dad was 12. So he just didn't have a really great picture or a, a really, you know, good role models in his life. And so I felt like my dad never really got a fair shot at things. And I always was trying to, you know, support my dad and help him be 
better and stronger and just felt like he maybe needed me more than my mom did. Right. And so when all this happened, you know, my mom was so furious as she, you know, as she should have been. Um, but when I was 16, all I thought was my parents are, are married. My dad screwed up. I get that. And, you know, my mom immediately, you know, asked him to leave, not just based on that instance. You know, as you get older, you realize there are lots of things that happen in your parents' life that you might not have been aware of. And I can honestly say now that my dad would have been a very difficult person to be married to. And he had, you know, other addictions that he went through with my mom, drugs and alcohol when I was a little kid, which I never saw. So for her, it was constant, you know, she just felt constantly emotionally drained and didn't feel like it was the best thing for her or her family anymore to remain, you know, married to my dad. But, you know, because they did such a good job at keeping that from us and, and dealing with those issues behind closed doors, when we got one little taste of it, it was like, you know, what do you mean you, you guys are getting divorced? Like, this is the first real issue that you know, that I feel like I had seen them go through. Right. So, yeah, I blame my mom for that and just thought that she wasn't putting in enough effort and, and didn't want to help my dad, and it didn't make me very happy. Yeah. Um, t- tell me what, what happened uh, the following years then. At, at 16, you're in high school, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your mom asked your dad to leave the house. What what developed over the next couple of years? Um, the next couple of years were really tough with my mom. I uh, didn't have a very good relationship with her. A lot of resentment built in toward um, toward how I felt she handled the situation. And then I spent those years trying to fix my dad. You know, I really was, I just thought it was so simple that you could stop gambling. And uh, he he continued to struggle with that for the next several years of his life. And so it was always two steps forward to take four steps back. And I began to see a lot of these things, you know, in my dad that my mom that my mom saw, but she never really would talk about with us. You know, I began to see my dad be irresponsible. I began to see him, you know, catch him in a few different lies. And, you know, I kind of, it felt very personal to me. And I didn't understand addiction at the time. I just thought, you know, you're choosing going to the casino over rebuilding this relationship and this family. And it didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was hard for me to process. So uh, that's when I found running. And fortunately for me, running provided me much more than just <clears throat> physical activity. It gave me a lot of a lot of sanity and taught me a lot of lessons about life around taking things one step at a time and knowing that you're going to be on some difficult roads in lives and you've got in your life and you've got choices to make when that happens. And I just thought if I kept persevering, that if I just keep going, I would be able to, you know, find a flatter road or a road with less, less potholes, but I'm going to have to make it up this hill. You know, I can't just turn around and, and uh, you know, not try to move forward and try to figure something out. So, you yeah, know, a lot of a lot of self-discovery in my teenage years. Yeah, you you were you were very. Um, I think at a young age, you, were you the oldest child? No, I'm the middle child. You're the middle child. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but but it's interesting to me that um, from the very beginning, it seems to me that you had this desire to um, try to help people and try to fix people. So, in other words, rather than at the age of sixteen finding out and just kind of um, you know getting into trouble and, and falling apart, um, you focused on how you could help your dad. Yeah, it's no, exactly. And I don't think it's any surprise. I know we're not that part of the story yet, but years later with me, you know, with back on my feet and that whole journey starting of me really being drawn and almost 
attracted, obviously not in a, you know, a sexual way, but I was very attracted to these group of guys, you know, hanging outside this homeless shelter because of my dad. I immediately felt, you know, that I was, you know, once the idea hit that I was, I was supposed to help them and I was supposed to, you know, be a positive part of their life and see if I can help them become happier. Right. And a lot of that comes from, you know, how I, how my relationship was, was with my dad. Yeah. Um, tell, so after high school, um, you did go to college. There's there's mm-hmm. a couple of years of, of things I wanted to talk about before you actually came to Philadelphia. And uh, what were you studying in college? I studied uh, public relations and political science. Okay. And My plan was always to be the president of the United States. I thought those were two, <laughs> two very good majors for me to choose. <laughs> you had big aspirations as a young girl. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so tell me what, at the age of 24, what brought you to Philadelphia? What job was that? Yeah, I was working um, at the Committee of 70. So I wasn't, I was looking for a new job. I was in D.C., wasn't really happy. I was working as a policy analyst, and I wasn't looking to move out of D.C. I, uh, I Somebody contacted me from Philadelphia about this opportunity, and um, I, I went up there and interviewed for it and, you know, learning a little bit about Jack Stahlberg, who I know a lot of Philadelphians know, and Zach used to be the editor of the Daily News, and he was going to try to rebuild this organization, and he was looking for someone to, you know, create and build their community relations and sort of marketing and development department. Um, and I was 24 years old, and I thought this is, you know, uh, at 24 years old, if I get the opportunity to do that, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. So I got the job offer, and I, and I took it, and spent the next two years really working a lot. And you know, as we think about my relationship with my dad, who again is this, my dad is the people can get a little bit of context. He's the nicest guy, and he will give you everything of what he doesn't have. He's extremely simple in regard to what makes him happy, and I think that there's a lot that. You know, we can all learn from how my dad, you know, lived his life. Um, he's not the most ambitious person. He's he's content, um, simple pleasures. And for me, Zach Stahlberg actually, you know, was like this father figure that I never had. You know, Zach was extremely successful. People respected him immensely. And I got a lot of joy and satisfaction out of, you know, doing really good work for him, um, having him be proud of me. Because while my dad was proud of me, my dad was proud of me for, you know, waking up in the morning. There wasn't like a difference in what I was doing with my life. It was my dad. And, and it was, you know, he never really pushed me or challenged me um, the way that I found that that Zach did. So it was interesting for me to, again, constantly look back at how my relationship with my father um, impacted how I saw, um, you know, older men or people who could provide me with some kind of, you know, context of, um, of satisfaction with, you know, making, making Zach be proud of me. And, um, so I think that all that stuff is interesting with how you bring all of that stuff into every relationship that you have in your life. Yeah, it, it is. It's very interesting. And, and, you know, you were very, very independent, um, as a young girl and moving forward. And, um, often there's, um, issues of self-esteem um, when you're the child of an alcoholic or, um, you know, any type of addiction. And I, I'm, I'm curious to know if if you were feeling that inside while you were, um, you know, out doing the things that you were doing in a very independent way, or did you feel that sense of um, confidence within you? 
Um, nope, I was ex- I was extremely insecure, and you know there was a part of me, and every everybody kind of can feel feel their way through life and try to figure out what it is that they're doing here. And you know, Susan, for such even at a young age, I always sort of felt that I was supposed to do something very impactful. I didn't know why. I never knew what it was. And from the ages of 24 to 26, you know, it really started to consume me that you know what I'm what I'm what I'm doing with my life is not what I'm supposed to be doing now. How do I find that? How do I get there? And I never, I never really, I actually have a lot of conversations about this now with, uh, with my friends who have difficult time being in relationships. But, you know, if you don't have that self-worth or self-value, it's very difficult for you to build friendships. And you, I, I found myself getting upset um, with people who would want to date me, with people who would want to be friends with me, that they were so accepting of who I was when I wasn't accepting of who I was. And I thought, how, you know, how can... How can this person want to spend time with me when I'm not even when I haven't fulfilled my potential yet? You know, this person can't must not see in me what I see in myself. And that was a lonely couple of years. I spent a lot of time by myself from 24 to 26 trying to figure out what it was that was going to give me so much fulfillment. And um, you know, it wasn't until you know again when back on my feet started that I started to feel so much joy in serving other people and that I really had purpose and direction in life that I started to like really love myself, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, falling falling madly in love with yourself is something that everybody needs to figure out. I think we're all very hard on ourselves. We all have our insecurities and vulnerabilities. And over the years, especially as I've entered my 30s, man, I have learned it is so important to talk about them. I don't let them, I don't consider them weaknesses. You know, the more I understand about myself, why I do what I do, why I don't do what I do, what what stimulates me, what makes me excited when I get sad. You know, I, I have much more, you know, I, I, I get to know myself over and over again. And we're very complicated human beings. And we think about all the things that impact us and that shape us and, and how they all make sense in some way, if you're willing to go on that personal journey. And it's, it can be a frustrating personal journey instead of just saying, oh, this is the way that I am really trying to understand, you know, why you are who you are and do you want to be that person? That's right. You know, and uh, and it's so we talk about this a lot in here that sharing these very personal stories is not easy. And um I, I think it's it's so brave of you to be sharing some of these very personal um stories as well as your, you know, your very personal feelings about yourself and what's happened because it's such great lessons. Uh, for those who hear these stories, well, I appreciate that, and I and I and I do. I, now, my you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking now, and I, I really do feel like it's my responsibility and obligation to share some of my my stuff, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, especially on stage. And I think people can look and say, well, you know, if Anne can do that in front of all these people, you know, I can do it with myself, or I can do it with my husband, or I can do it with my best friend. You know, you can at least start there and start to cleanse yourself. And sometimes the things that we, you know, that we do or say um, or our behaviors and why we think a certain way, you know, we don't like to admit a lot of that stuff. Um, You know, everybody has these parts about them that they're not not proud of. But again, Mm -hmm. figuring out, you know, okay, why do I do that? And and why am I motivated by that? And, you know, I think it's all very, again, it's very cleansing when you start to just communicate it and get it out and it makes you a better person it makes you again understand you on a, on a level that's really profound and I think very spiritual right you know I'm curious when you're you do a lot of speaking and um, 
are you nervous when you're when you're speaking in front of large groups? Um, no, I'm I'm not. I feel and and it's come with time. You know, I uh, obviously when back on my feet started, I, I I didn't plan to you know be this speaker. I just started sharing, and then you know, big part of my role when I was CEO was speaking a lot. And now when I'm you know its founder and you know doing some other motivational and some leadership and some speaking on bravery and identity. You know, I really feel like I'm in my my element there. I'm so I'm so comfortable talking about. I don't have all the answers, right? I don't ever I don't ever point fingers and be like, you know, look at me. I figure all this stuff out. I, I just talk about my journey. I talk about where I am. You know, when I was when I, when I was the CEO, I was talking about a lot about the founding of Back on My Feet. And now that I've left Back on My Feet as its CEO, you know, I talk a lot about that emotional process for me and how challenging that was and the difficult you know, emotional roller coaster that it was for me to really figure out that it was the right time for me um, to move on from that role. So I just, I find that I never, I never script anything. I, I, ne- I really try to feel my audience and what they, you know, what they would benefit from, mm-hmm. from hearing. And I really engage them when I do speaking uh, and get people to, to open up and, you know, potentially cry, hopefully laugh a few times, but I think this this, emo, this emotional cleansing experience when you don't expect it, you know, I think we've all had those moments when we just start crying for no reason. And it's just like, you know, something needs to come out and we just hold everything in so easily. Like we're not, like it's not brave to let it out or it's not the responsible thing to do or right. it's an emotional thing. And women can't be emotional, you know, you don't want to be an emotional woman. Right. Just, you know, <laughs> Especially I, I not in, in the corporate that. world. It's, I think, yeah. you know, people fear that it's a weakness. Still, mm. you know, I think we have a lot of um, it's it's a lot different today with um, allowing people to open up and share personal things. And people are seeing more and more how courageous that is. But yet I still think each individual feels that they're showing weakness. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. I, I deal with some of that stuff now, um, you know, in my new and some of my new journey with my new business, there's a lot of construction work involved in the studios that I'm opening, which I know we'll talk about in a second, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like when I get upset or when I, when I, uh, when I get very stern with uh, some of uh, maybe our contractors, it's like, Oh, that, you know, and being moody or she must be. And I'm just like, no, th- you know, this is not being moody. This is being professional. These are the deadlines and they need to get done. Right. And whether right. it's me saying them or a man saying them, you know, you can kind of see a little bit of that, um, especially in the, in the construction business where it's still very man pop, you know, a male populated industry and field. And you can just sense a little bit of it. Like, you know, oh, here's this woman who's just emotional and moody. And I'm like, it's not that at all. It's, it's timelines have to get done. And, you know, I'm an extremely um, ambitious person and I like to meet my goals. And um, if, if those things are getting off track, then we're going to have a conversation. Right. Good for you. Um, you know what, Ann, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we need to backtrack a little bit and tell the really wonderful story about you running down 13th and Vine and, and how Back on My Feet got started. We'll be right back. Great. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. 
and your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the mutual fund store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash wpn. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker Financial Advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484 530 2806. Again, that number is 484 
530-2806 or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB AM860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined today by Ann Malam. And Ann is founder of Back on My Feet, um, which is an organization that helps the homeless through a running club. Um, and uh, I wanted to get right to the story of how the whole thing began. You know, we're going to backtrack a little bit, but in May of 2007, um, you were doing your early morning runs as you always did. And I'll let you take it from there. What, what, what happened or what started to happen? Yeah. I, you know, I was running every morning in Philly around 5:30 AM and not because I felt like I had to, but because I really wanted to, I felt very much alive at 5:30, and I kind of felt like I was waking up the city with my feet a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I ran by Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission on the corner of 13th and Vine, you know, pretty much every every morning. I always went down down south to start my running route. And, um, you know, I always ran by this homeless shelter and I saw these people out there a lot. And I didn't really I didn't really do anything. You know, I didn't really wave or say hi. Um, I just sort of, you know, ran past. And then in May of 2007, you know, for whatever reason, there were these just group of guys on the corner that that caught my attention, and they started to you know wave at me, and I started to wave at them, and and they were there again the next morning, and um you know and the next morning, and the same faces, and you know when you see the same faces, you start to get a little bit more familiar. We started to talk and say good morning, and they would joke around with me that you know asking me if all I do is run all day, and uh, I joke, but it's true. I'd ask them if all they do is just stand there all morning, and you know it was really. <laughs> It was really this fun, um, very authentic uh, rapport that was going on. And after a couple weeks of that season, I, I realized it was just like, you know, instantaneous where I was like, wow, what am I, what am I doing good just by running by these guys? Why don't I, uh, why don't I run with them? You know, here I am moving my life forward physically, of course, but running was such a bigger part of my life than just a physical activity. It really made me feel strong, uh, really helped me create an identity for myself. And I thought it could do the exact same thing for these guys because running doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a woman, a man, if you're black, if you're rich, if you're poor, you know, everybody's got to do the same effort and you get the same thing out of it. So Mm -hmm. logistically, it all made sense. And I'm going to start this running club. And so I uh, called up the director of the, the shelter and asked them, you know, if I could start start a running club for these individuals that'd be, you know, living, you know, in the shelter and, I, uh, I didn't get a response right away. Actually, first I sent an email, and you know I, I followed up after a week, and and uh, finally put in a phone call to him. And you know this individual, you know, kind of tried to think of the nicest way to tell me that you know people who are homeless, these guys aren't going to want to run. That homeless guys don't run, you know. <laughs> and um, I, you know, tried to get me to see if I wanted to do any other volunteer work in the the kitchen or the shelter and. I was really focused on just the running running side of it, and I, that's all I wanted to do was share my gift mm-hmm. or share this love of the sport. And so anyway, he, he agreed to ask the gentleman living in that shelter, and there were 
nine guys that fortunately said yes, that they, they would like to start running. And I think that's amazing know, that. that right off the bat, nine of them said, we want to do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I can't, I'll get into the reasons why in a second, but I, uh, you know, I'm super excited. I just took this, I took a big job with Comcast right around the same time, actually. I was transitioning into a new career, and I asked Comcast if I, you know, could have five weeks to before starting, you know, this job to get this running club going. And fortunately, they said yes. So the next five weeks for me were all about these guys. And my first interaction with them was up at the, the chapel at the shelter where I met them for the first time. I gave them new shoes. I gave them clothes, everything they needed to start their, you know, new running career. And the most important thing um, that still happens today, it's really the ethos of the organization was that I asked them to sign a piece of paper uh, that I called the Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission uh, Dedication Contract. And um, it said things like, you know, if you want to join the running club, you've got to show up three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you need to be on time and we start at 6 a.m. You need to come with a positive attitude and you need to respect and support your teammates. And it didn't say, Susan, like, oh, God, you guys are homeless. Like, I, I can't expect you to come every day. Like, I'm sure that's not possible. Or, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to be late, right? Like, you're homeless. Um, uh, just try not to be too late. There was none of this stigma that was brought into this conversation. And I found it amazing how these guys looked at me and responded when I looked at them and not only demanded but knew that they were capable of such excellence, of pure perfection in meeting these goals and being a part of these guidelines mm-hmm. and everybody you know kind of smiled and looked at each other and and we all signed that piece of paper that night including me and had our first run on July 3rd of 2007 and I had some really good media contacts and Billy from my work at the committee of 70 and I you know wanted to get the word out about this 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 running club about these guys like taking a real positive step in their life and secondly, I had to get more people involved. You know, now I have four weeks or so until I start my job. And, you know, as soon as I start my job, which was a ton of travel, you know, is this running, are people going to continue to run with these individuals? Um, so the media was, was very confused. Uh, they were, one, very <laughs> supportive, which I'll forever be grateful for. But right. it was like, wait, wait, homeless and running? That doesn't, that doesn't, <laughs> this, that can't possibly be happening. So every single you know, newspaper, the Daily News, the Inquirer, NBC, ABC, Fox, everybody showed up that morning just to actually see what was going on. Right. It had never been done before. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just, again, this unfortunate stigma that we have in our our heads about those who are homeless. Um, And then there's this elitism about running, that it's it's hard. People who run are ambitious. They're self-motivated. They're disciplined. They're responsible. They're focused. That's not somebody who's homeless. So this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you talked about the reasons why these individuals wanted to do it. Well, that's all the questions that the media had. And after they start talking to these guys, they just get the most obvious answers. You know, they wanted to start this running club because they wanted to try something new. They wanted to see if they could get healthy. They wanted to see if they're going to be any good at this, meet new people. Very obvious human answers that you or I or anybody else would give for trying something new. And, and you know, I have to interrupt for one second. I, I do believe that a part of it must have been they wanted to hang out with you. <laughs> I'm sure that was a big part of it. Well, interestingly enough, the director of that shelter did not tell them 
that there was some young blonde girl who was going to come in and lead the running club. Oh, he now that's that very, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. He made that very clear. Okay. To me that that won't be the part of the motivation. So that yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, but we did we did have a lot of fun together. You know, it was just this instant bond, and I spent so much time, especially with Mike. Who, you know, when I was living in Philly, was, you know, one of my closest friends. We spent all kinds of time together. We spent all kinds of time together, um, you know, at my at my place. We would go to movies. I found Mike very enlightening to his life and how he lived his life and the struggles he had. And, you know, growing up in Wilmington and, and the gangs and the drugs and, you know, all the temptations. And I just got so cultured by him and really a, a, an amazing dose of, you know, reality for how other people, you know, ha- have to live and survive. And it really shaped me and gave me perspective. Um, so I loved spending time with all those guys. And, yeah, and, like, you know, over the next few weeks, I began to realize that this was something so much more than just a running club, that this – I was beginning to see how they were responding. They were showing up. They were there. They were there every day on time. They wanted to be there. And – I remember the reaction that I would get after tracking their miles on a big poster board, you know, their names on the left numbers at the top. And every day after the miles, I would color in how much we ran. And, and these guys would just hover over my shoulder watching, you know, me give them credit, public credit in front of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's when you realize that no matter how different all of us are on the surface, that we are connected through humanity. We all want the same things. Everybody listening right now, you and me, Susan, we want to be noticed, appreciated, valued, cared for, loved, you know, have self-value, have self-worth. We want to be happy. And this was happening with this community we were building. These guys were getting all of those emotions. We seek them out on a daily basis, whether we are conscious of it, conscious of it or not. We look for it in our relationships, our friendships, our jobs. You know, those are the emotions that, that keep us going, keep us searching. Yeah, you know. And, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to say one of the key things I think that you did from the very beginning that was so smart was your, um, you know, the expectations um, you placed on them because that made them feel that they were not, you know, in that position. They were not homeless. They were actually um, just like you. Yeah, exactly. Um and they were, and they, they had, they had dreams, they had aspirations, they have things they were scared of. They had, you know, they have kids, they have movies. They like, it's like we, and then one thing that really drives me crazy and it's not to anybody's fault and I'm not sticking my fist at anybody, but we define that population based on whether or not they have a home. You know, we say, Oh, that's a homeless person. It's, it's very wrong of us. And I don't know why we tolerate it as a society or as a neighborhood you know, that doesn't define that person. We should, you know, what one thing everybody can do to, to help change that perception is say, oh, that person's going through homelessness or experiencing homelessness. It doesn't make up their whole character or their whole identity. Mm-hmm. And by putting that in front of it and saying that they know, oh, Joe's a homeless person, it strips them of every opportunity to become somebody because of the unfortunate, again, stigma that's attached to it that they start to even, you know, think about themselves. Oh, somebody who's homeless is dangerous. They're drinking all day. They're lazy. It's, you know, it's very difficult to escape the stereotype of that word. So we should all just stop using it. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and people should not make assumptions about a person's life story based on that circumstance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
So let's talk, talk about how you, you know, you didn't just start, um, or you didn't just work with this one um, homeless shelter. Things started to take off and things quickly um, started to um, gain the interest of other cities. And, and, you know, this organization is now well beyond Philadelphia. Um, can, mm-hmm. can you tell us how, how those steps happened? Yeah, you know, after realizing, you know, not only that this was going to be something bigger, I just felt it. And on top of really seeing a a vision for, you know, helping people create better versions of themselves and have a better life by first focusing on emotional well-being, which I think running can, you know, be a huge catalyst for and and help people achieve that. You know, my personal life started to make a ton of sense. You know, my dad, you know, I I struggled with my, with what happened happened with my family and my dad and his addictions for, for 10 years. And I never had any answers for why we had to go through that, why we had to, why I had to take that turn and, and uh, my parents had to get divorced. There was never like, oh, that's why, and fell back on my feet. I never would have cared about those guys if it wasn't for my dad's struggles. I never would have became a runner, I don't think, if it wasn't for my dad's struggles. So when your life starts to make sense like that, you know, I found myself like looking at the sky feeling like, I'm, I'm, I'm not this clever. You know, all of these things did not fall into place because of my planning. I couldn't have planned this if I, if I tried to. And I sort of just at that moment accepted, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to build this. I know I'm supposed to get people to change their, you know, views on homelessness. And I need to surround myself with really smart people who believe in this idea and this theory and this mission and make it a reality. So, yeah, that was six and a half years ago and a little bit more than that actually now. And since, you know, since then, started building and growing and and learning and listening. And the plan was always to build something substantial that could be replicated, Mm -hmm. that could help people beyond Philly, that we could really build a business and a structural model and operational model and a sound financial and legal model that made sense for us to do this. And now we are in 11 cities, you know, Philly, Baltimore, D.C., Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Indy, Atlanta, New York, Austin, and Los Angeles most recently um, successful chapters in each market, 48 full-time staff. We've helped, you know, about 1,500 people find employment through since 2000, since early 2009, you know, since for, through our organization, which is what Back on My Feet is all about, you know, building self-worth and self-value to create self-sufficiency. And it's been an amazing ride. And along the way, we get to inspire thousands of people to, you know, to engage with uh, maybe individuals they wouldn't have otherwise and to even ask themselves, you know, what it is that they want out of their life. Mm -hmm. What purpose and passion are they looking for and how to achieve it? So it's been extremely rewarding, very purposeful. And, you know, back in my feet will obviously always live in my heart. Um, And, you know, I just you can never get tired of people watching them, watching people discover their capabilities and potential. It's so it's just like, you know, very emotional. Yeah. And it's going to go on, you know, forever. I, I, I'd i love to hear some success stories. Can you can you tell me about one or two in particular? Um, and, and let me ask you this. And is it is it only men or is mm-hmm. the OK, so men and women? Yeah, we have, um, we have about 80% men and 20% women or so. Okay. Can you tell me um, any a success story of, of uh, anybody in particular that, you know, started, joined the club, and is now doing something um, exciting? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are literally, obviously, you know, thousands of success stories and, and you know, hundreds of really amazing success stories. But, you know, mm-hmm. one that comes to mind, I'll keep it in Philly, is Kenny. You know, Kenny was with us from... 2009, um, and I would never share anything about Kenny that he doesn't share about himself. 
Um, but Ke- Ke- you know, Kenny a- had uh, a very big bipolar disorder. Um, you know, was on a lot of medication. You know, up and down, um, and really just couldn't you know couldn't get things to stick. And after you know finding back on my feet, finding such a a consistent and non-judgment zone, and the, obviously the endorphins and all the benefits that come with exercising and running. Um, you know, Kenny had been able to get off of his off of his medication. You know, find real friendship. Um, he is an inspiration to so many. Kenny now, you know, works. He does landscaping. He's looking at starting his own landscaping business. He's got his own place. You know, he takes care of his family. Um, he, you know, runs with Back on My Feet as an alumni. He comes and speaks to people who were in his position um, to help encourage them and pay it forward. He's just like, you know, he's, he goes to, goes to church. He's just like this stand-up citizen after, you know, finding this organization that helped him mm-hmm. become the best version of himself. So yeah. that's Kenny, you know, uh, LaTanya, um, just from a woman's standpoint, um, she always sticks out in my mind because she has a, a very different story. You know, she was working in Detroit for GM during the whole car meltdown situation in 2000, you know, in nine and eight, and she lost her job and she knew how to do one thing, which was weld a certain part of uh, machinery for cars. And, you know, when the, the whole economy crashed, you know, she couldn't find a job for two years. She found herself homeless. Um, she didn't have any addiction issues. She, she, you know, had a very stable work history for the last 12 years of her life, mm-hmm. um, moved to Dallas trying to find something, you know, she, she Googled, she said, you know, where are jobs? And she found Dallas, moved down there, enrolled in a shelter, found back on my feet. Um, we helped place her at the Marriott, which is our biggest employment partner nationally within four months. She was the only African-American female engineer at the Marriott in the entire city of Dallas. She is one of the highest hourly employees now in Dallas. She, you know, lives on her own, has a car, um, constantly getting promoted down at Marriott and, you know, doing very well. And so it's situations like that where, you know, once everything that you're dependent on, again, you know how to do one thing, which many of us do, right? We have a skill set that, like, we really try to get very good at, and all of a sudden the need for that skill goes away. And, you know, everybody else is looking for a job and you, you're not, you know, you're not so diversified with that skill because you've gotten so good at doing that one thing. And, sh- and she, you know, was in a tough spot. Right. Um, so we were able to help her and it feels very good. And we didn't do the work for her. She, you know, did the work for herself, but we offered the tools and resources and structure for her to find, you know, her new life. And one of the things she says, which I think is always so powerful, is yes, back on my feet helped her, you know, find employment and everything else. But it also helps her feel like it's okay for her to dream again and for us to instill that belief and faith back in her. Yeah. Those are the things that, like, like that without a doubt make you know that what you're doing is working. What you're doing is making a real impact in people's happiness and yeah. how they view themselves. And that's the, the motivation that many of us have to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I could listen to the success stories all day long. I think it, it's so great. Um and, yeah, and it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun. I wonder if, too, you, uh, the homeless people that you have met, which, again, I'm sure there there's many, many, um, do you find that a lot of them do not have family, uh, a family support system? Yes, of course. And many times, you know, 80% of our folks are also dealing with addiction. And so just like my dad, right, when addiction is active, in your life and you, you, you haven't started your recovery process yet, 
it's very difficult to love somebody who has an active addiction. You burn a lot of bridges. Right. Um, you you hurt people. Um, and I, you know, I experience. You know, while there are tons of success stories, there are tons of really you know sad stories with back in my feet too. You know, people stealing from me, um, which is part of the realities. And that's just not because they're homeless. Addiction is a very real disease. And with many of our members, you know, again actively in their recovery, you're going to have slip ups and you're going to have to fall down before you get back up again. And, you know, as someone on the receiving end of that, you need to decide, you need to decide what you're going to do when that happens. You know, do you cut somebody off? Um, and if you keep cutting people off, you know, then these, then the individuals keep going to the next person. Right. And so you really have to decide, you know, what is the right strategy when someone messes up? Um, you know, I've, I put, I put, a, I put a member in jail for six months. Not because I didn't love and care about him, but because I knew that that was the best thing that could happen to him. Wow. That if he, you know, understood what he did was wrong, and you know, Isaac and I are still in contact, and um, you know, he still tells me that was the best thing that could have happened to him to get his life straight. And uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of tough love, but right. a little bit of a judgment call every single time. So yeah, family yeah. is scarce with a lot of our members, mm-hmm. um, and that's one thing that we really find a lot of joy in too is helping them rebuild those relationships when they're ready, when they're ready to be a responsible participant in their family with their friends. You know, they can be reliable, dependable, they can be a good person. And that's when you start to, you know, again, rebuild, rebuild those types of relationships. Yeah. And only then. That's a big part of it that, you know, gaining the respect back. Um, We're going to take one last quick break, Anne, and when we come back, I'd love to talk about um, when you step down as CEO and uh, SolidCore, your your new venture now. We'll be right back. Great. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash wpn. Go Nova! Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. 
Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. Um, we are talking with Ann Malum, who is founder of Back on My Feet, uh, which was launched uh, in Philadelphia. And, uh, Ann, we have a few minutes left in the show, and I, I'd love to talk about all the wonderful things you're doing now. You did um, step down as CEO in 2013 from mm-hmm. Back on My Feet. And uh, so let's talk to the listeners about what you're, uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, I, uh, I did step down uh, in August with my uh, July 3rd, August 1st was my last day, and I, uh, I've started a new company in, in D.C. I was living in New York before D.C. and after Philly, and I uh, moved back down here and opened a, a, fit, a fitness boutique studio called Solid Core, um, which is the features the Ligree Fitness Method. It's the best workout that I've, that I've ever done. Um, and I really wanted to be able to bring the workout to D.C. and build a brand-new brand um, in a small business fashion, which was something brand-new for me. And, you know, it's interesting because it's very similar to Back on My Feet. There's obviously a few differences. Um, that was nonprofit. This is for-profit. Uh, the structure is different. But what I'm trying to do is the same thing, which is build a community to help people become the strongest version or the best version of themselves. I had many, uh, many food and body issues in my teenage years and in my 20s and, you know, really being happy with, you know, how you look and accepting yourself and reminding yourself you're strong and capable and deserving uh, is, is very important. And that's the culture that Solid Core is, is creating. Mm-hmm. And two more studios are opening in the next couple months. And just the response from our clients about, you know, how, how we make them feel, we make them feel important, we make them feel valued and warm and welcome and strong. You know, it's the same satisfaction that I get from, from back on my feet. And, you know, I plan to grow this on a national scale as well and learn a lot of new stuff. And, you know, Susan, it was interesting when stepping down, though, um, it tickled big emotional, you know, ride for me to get there, to step down from back on my feet when I started to feel 
you know, that I wanted to do something else. I almost felt guilty about it. It was like, you know, who am I to want to move beyond back on my feet? It's given me so much purpose. My life is amazing. I get to help people. This thing is growing. It helps, you know, really heal my relationship with my dad and my mom. And, and all of a sudden I'm feeling like I, I need more. I want to do something else. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a challenging um, experience and um, emotion that I had to really work through to feel like this was the right thing to do. You know, back on my feet needs a new CEO to lead it differently, um, to make it become less, uh, less dependent on their founder. Um, and I wasn't going to feel guilty about wanting and needing to, to grow and learn and try something new and different right. and evolve my relationship with the organization. Yeah. You know what? There's no rule that says we can only do one great thing in our lifetime, right? Yeah. You're, you know, yeah, you're meant yeah. to do a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. And when um, when back on my feet was just so much of my identity. And, you know, I just sort of felt to myself, um, and this is where your ego steps in, right, where, you know, I was like, it would be very easy for me to stay at back on my feet the rest of my life, and no one would question my ambition or my commitment, but I, but I would. I, I knew it was at the point where I needed to be challenged in a different way, mm-hmm. and that, frankly, all of my, you know, talents and skills and gifts that I feel you know, I was blessed with was actually not best serving the organization anymore. I know how to create and build, build things. Um, and I, and I know how to do it quickly. And the organization was at a point where it didn't, it didn't need that anymore. It needed stability. It needed, you know, sustainability. It needed a a different, a a different operating style. You know, you can't just grow, grow and grow and grow. You have to like stop and kind of see and assess what's going on. And that's not where my, you know, my, where my skill sets are. So, um, it was the right thing for me to do. I, I feel it so certainly um, to, to move on. We have a, grant, a brand new CEO in there who I'm very excited about. She started in mid-January, and uh, I'm looking forward to helping her navigate and to, to be a part of it um, in whatever way that she feels it'll be helpful to her. That's terrific. Yeah, and you know what? The model's there. You 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 laid the groundwork, uh, and now it's you know it'll have the ability to, as you said, grow and change with the times. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, can I ask you, I'd like to know, you know, you've done a lot of um, work on yourself over your lifetime. Um, You're still young. You have a long way to go. But I'm wondering, (laughs) how are you doing today? Are you happy, you know, from a... um, an emotional standpoint, you, you talk a lot about the, you know, mind, body and spirit and, and trying to always keep them healthy. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm really happy and you, you have to learn. I think there's two things about happiness, a couple of things that we need to remember. One, happiness is a choice. And if anybody thinks otherwise, you know, they're not they're You're kind of fooling yourself. You can't play a victim to happiness. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is realizing what are those things that make you happy and are you allowing those things to be a part of your life? You know, we can all, we can say, oh, these are the six things. I'm, I'm happiest when I'm surfing or snowboarding or X. But if you look at your life and you're not doing those things, you know, you need to change your priorities. So that's what I feel like is really, is really key. And I am so happy when I am building and when I am creating. And a big focus for me this year is to not just be like a creator with things, but actually participate, you know, to, to, to not grow solid core as fast. You know, there's going to be a couple more studios that open and then taking a little bit of time, getting the operations right. Mm-hmm. And then allowing myself to go, whether it's Costa Rica or, you know, Colombia or whatever for a month and just participate in that culture and not feel like I have to be, you know, constantly productive to feel valued. And that's one thing that I'm working on is, 
you know, letting myself be and not feel that I'm not important if I'm not constantly growing something. So I'm very aware as we all enter new stages in our life, I'm very aware that that's my stage and I'm making a very active effort to, to try to balance those areas out with keeping my happiness as, you know, I, when I create and build and also allowing myself to have these experiences where I'm, I'm, I'm just participating and I'm a little bit of a spectator. Right. And don't feel that pressure like, you know, oh my God, if I don't get another studio open in the next two months, uh, you know, uh, I put this unnecessary pressure on myself to do that sometimes. And like, nobody else cares. Nobody else cares <laughs> you need to cut months. yourself some slack. <laughs> yeah, you just need to realize we're all not as important as we think we are. So. <laughs> well, that's your drive. You know, you have the drive. It's hard to kind of squash it, but um, yeah. you should be very proud. And um we, we only have a moment left, Anne. I'm, I'm so appreciative of your joining me today uh, to share your story. And there's much more to the story. And, and maybe I'll, you know, maybe you and I will connect outside of the show and, and catch up. But um, if you could give your contact information for anyone who's listening that might be interested in the, in the future of Solid Core, why don't yeah, you? It's t- yeah, Solid Core is, um, you know, looking at the Philly market actually as well. But the website is solidcore.co, not, not .com. Back on my seats website is backonmyseat.org, um, and all my contact information is you know is on both of those websites. I'm pretty uh, pretty accessible. Okay. Um, with my with my email and phone and all that good stuff. Okay, terrific. Thank you so much, Anne. I, I really you, appreciate Susan. it. Hope you get to your meeting on time. Thank you. We'll talk Have soon. A great day. You too. Right. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone, for for listening to this week of Women to Watch. I'm so appreciative of your joining us, and I hope you all have a great week.